1: Mich immer weiter durch die Straßen zieht. Die Hello and welcome to Gegenpressing, the Bundesliga podcast from the Football Grab Network. My name is Manuel Fed and this week we are previewing Germany's Eurogroup F. For the preview, I'm joined by CBS French correspondent Jonathan Johnson, Tom Condat from Portugal, and Hungarian football expert Thomas Mortimer. Let's just dive right into it, shall we? Yeah, joining me now is Jonathan Johnson from CBS Sport France. Specialist Jonathan, I feel like we've probably talked and chatted and all sorts of stuff on Twitter for for many, many years now. But it's so good to actually hear your voice for the first time.
0: Tell me about it. Thanks a lot for having me on. I was I was delighted to get the invitation, and you know it's. One of the greatest things about their the international tournaments, it brings sort of us together, the the football Twitter community, uh, and you quite often, you know, get opportunities to, to meet and interact uh, with people that you haven't done so with uh, before. And, uh, you know, obviously it's our turn this time.
1: Yeah, it is. And um, I'm looking forward to this tournament. And, you know, it's an odd one for me a little bit because there was so much football this year. We spoke a little bit about this podcast before the podcast that there's so many games. But this little bit of a break now, it actually makes me look forward to this tournament a little bit. And I don't know how how you feel because you've been very busy with covering the Champions League for CBS. Paris Saint-Germain, of course, went deep into tournaments twice in a row now. So are you ready to cover this tournament?
2: Yeah,
0: I think so. I mean, uh, it makes a big difference when you're not going to be sort of on the front lines, so to speak, uh, you know, following the tournaments around, especially in a tournament like this, where it's not just in one country, you know, it's jumping between different venues. So in in many ways, I'm grateful not to be, um, you know, doing too much on the the travelling front but no there's there's definitely groups that I'm looking forward to seeing and and specific matches and you know I think you're right as well uh you know once you take a break of a couple of weeks it it brings that appetite back because like you said we we've spent you know pretty much the entirety of the season with wall to wall football uh you know an important match being played somewhere every day uh, you know, pretty much for the entirety of the campaign, you know, there wasn't even any let up over Christmas because, you know, as we know that the UK pushes on through uh, for Boxing Day matches, that sort of stuff. But even the the leagues with traditional winter breaks like the Bundesliga, uh, you know, had shortened breaks. So it's it's been a very odd season in many ways or at least you know quite different uh for, for obvious reasons but no you're right you know i think that that hunger that appetite has has finally come back just ahead of this uh,
1: this euros and for us the two of us you know i'm covering germany you covering france this group f is the last of the groups but the first game of that group is the one between france and germany and is there a better way to kick off that group
0: no, I don't think there is. Uh, you know, obviously, it's uh, it, it, it's quite a. Uh, I, I wouldn't call it the group of death, but uh, I know I know that many people are. You know, but it is obviously a very attractive group, and you've got the likes of Germany, Portugal, France in it, and Hungary as well. I mean, the the interesting thing about Hungary is they're going to be playing a couple of their matches at home, and they're one of the only. Places where they're going to be able to have 100% capacity, which is going to make it, you know, quite uh, difficult for the teams that have to go there. France being one of them, obviously. So, you know, I think that this group, the the whole dynamic of it is is, is very uh, intriguing, and you know, I, I don't think that there's any better way really for it to be kicked off than, uh, you know, sort of two of the the traditional players on on this stage coming coming face to face. So, I think France and Germany has the has the makings of being a very
1: good way to to, to kick off the group. You know, as a German, as a, someone that supported and followed this team for a long time, I look at this France side and I, I see a giant of world football and I was going to structure it with strength and weaknesses. But talking about the strengths of this France side, um, how do you even define the strengths of the side that seems to be so complete, Jonathan?
0: It's true. There, there, there are very few holes to pick in this this France side at the moment. I mean, I'd say if I was being really picky, uh, I'd say that France does have a few headaches uh, in the fullback positions and slightly in midfield because I don't think it's that obvious sort of who will be starting in the middle. Uh, aside from Engolo Conte and, and Paul Pogba, and you know, obviously when you've got the likes of uh Benjamin Pava and Luca Hernandez playing as fullbacks when they started their careers as center backs uh, you know they they're not quite the natural fits you you perhaps want in the fullback positions but you know obviously any of the players that that, that step into those roles uh, are going to be of of world class talent and that's you know the 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 greatest blessing that France have and that Didier Deschamps has you know I think he's probably the envy of all of the other uh, coaches at this tournament because of the not just the the quality that he has available to him at senior level, but the you know the quality and depth that France have, you know, knowing that there's generations uh, of of talented players still coming through, that's you know going to keep France competitive for the best part of the the next twenty years, uh, you know, and I think that's probably the most frightening proposition for for so many international teams when they come up against France because you know we've seen uh you know these kind of cycles over the years where some national teams have have enjoyed their moments in the sun and then uh you know sort of faded away a little bit we've we're seeing that uh, at the moment uh, towards the end of Joachim Löw's time with Germany you know we've also seen it with Spain as well uh but France when you look at the the quality that's coming through in some of the the age groups just below senior level You know, it's almost like a a never ending um, conveyor belt of talent.
1: So the strength is its depth. Would you say that?
0: Yeah, I definitely say, uh, you know, that France has fewer depth issues than than pretty much anybody else uh, in this competition. Uh, and I would also say that France has a very good mix of youth and experience, which is something that, you know, I think is very important for any successful uh, national team. The The only thing that I, I would say perhaps is that Didier Deschamps is perhaps guilty a little bit um, of being too loyal to, to some people because there are some players, uh, you know, who can barely justify their presence in the squad. You know, Olivier Giroud. As fantastic a character as he is and as good as he's been over the last couple of years you know he played an important but understated role in the 2018 World Cup success in Russia yet he's not really seen uh, enough game time to justify his inclusion which I think is partially why uh, you know Deschamps and the French Football
1: Federation were c- so keen to bring Karim Benzema uh, back into the fold. I want to get to Benzema in just a moment but you kind of hinted already at a few of the weaknesses, um, Oliver Giroud, maybe one. You mentioned the fullbacks as well. Is that what worries you the most or is there any other particular area where you look at this France side and like say, okay, well, look, they are very good. They are the favorites. But if you, Joachim Löw, you want to exploit this, is there any particular area that comes to mind?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, Hugo Lloris is is not having the best phase of his career at the moment, particularly at club level. Uh, I think that President Kimpembe has not been the same player since Maurizio Pochettino took over at Paris Saint-Germain. You know, and I think the third position in midfield, uh, a lot is going to depend on who Deschamps selects for that, because obviously, you know, he... Uh, he brings along long content to least, uh, to a lot of these international tournaments. And, and don't get me wrong, I think Aliso is a, is a fine player, but obviously he's had his struggles uh, over the past couple of years, notably uh, in terms of fitness with a with a couple of injuries. And if N'Golo Conte was to, to pick up an injury, which we've seen at, at various times this season with Chelsea, then I think suddenly... Uh, that French midfield loses control. I think the only position where where France are really well stocked, especially, uh, you know, now that Benzema is being included, is is in attack. Because even if you were to substitute off uh, one of Griezmann, Mbappé or Benzema, there are, Uh, you know, more than adequate replacements to to come off the bench. I mean, okay, if if they were to miss multiple games, particularly in the group stage, that might be more problematic. But I think that France, you know, are are very well stocked in attack. But if we were talking about a France without Benzema, uh, expecting Giroud to lead the line, uh, having barely played for Chelsea this season, that would obviously be uh, more concerning from a French point of view.
1: I find the return of Karim Benzema very intriguing. John, uh, he's he's a player who's obviously done a lot for Real Madrid over the last few years, and probably one of the big reasons why they, they actually managed to reach the semi-final of the Champions League because I did not see see them get that far. His return is a huge opportunity, I think, but it also comes with some risks, is because he does change the dynamic of the dressing room, doesn't he? Or is this something where you say, okay, well, yeah, great, he's back. Um, You know, France have something that Germany don't have, which is two number nines. But on the other hand, is this something that worries you? Or is Benzema's return just a a massive benefit for this team?
0: I mean, I think Benzema's return is beneficial. Uh, I was a little concerned when the announcement was made that, uh, you know, it it did risk upsetting the chemistry in the squad. But I do think the way that the group has reacted since... um, you know, and also Benzema, the way that he's been talking publicly, I think all of that is very encouraging. And then obviously, uh, as as we say, I mean, it's a British saying, it's not a French saying, but the, you know, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And, you know, when Benzema took to the pitch with France and the friendly against Wales, that was the proof that he can really combine well with this team. I mean, I wouldn't say that he's fitted in seamlessly, but it was probably about as painless uh, an experience as you could wish to see. And I actually think that, you know, seeing him on the pitch has brought out something new in Mbappe and Griezmann, which you know I think is is quite exciting for France coming into this international tournament. I actually um, wrote an article uh, for a pub- publication, the, the Modern Footballer, ahead of this tournament about how Benzema's inclusion brings a bit of a spark uh, back to the French national team. And I think it's something that they really needed because having watched them since the 2018 World Cup success, uh, particularly in World Cup qualifying so far, where they've drawn against Ukraine and then, uh, you know, just about managed to scrape a couple of wins against the likes of uh, Azerbaijan. Uh, it's it's not been particularly um, convincing so far. I mean, okay, you know, I know teams like uh, Bosnia Herzegovina and, and you know have some very talented players, but you know the way that France has been playing against you know some of these teams that are far. Below, uh, you know, the, their level uh, in terms of their respective squads uh, is, is being quite underwhelming. So I think that France really needed something new, uh, you know, something to give them a bit of a, a, a boost coming into this tournament and, and Benzema coming off one of the best seasons of his career with Real Madrid, uh, you know, is, is, is about a, as big a boost as you could find. So, you know, to see him come back, obviously, he brings a lot on the pitch. Uh, but there were questions about what would happen away from the pitch. And so far, uh, the the early indications have been that he's actually been embraced very much so by the, you know, by the French squad. Uh, his teammates uh, and, and Deschamps himself so that that bodes well for for France moving forward for this tournament
1: I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, Karim Benzema back in the squad and I think it's going to be very intriguing um, having him there um, another player that I want to ask you about is Angolo Kante and he was key for Chelsea winning Champions League is he France's most important player I certainly
0: think that he's one of uh, the most important players. He's, he's kind of like the glue that holds it all together, uh, you know, because I think having him in that midfield enables the likes of Paul Pogba to thrive. And then, depending on who Deschamps selects as sort of the third man in that rough 4 3 3, I, you know, I think. It, I've got a feeling it may well be Adria and Javier, you know, that gives them uh, a lot more license to to roam and and get forward. Uh, You know, they're two players who don't really embrace the defensive side of the game. So I think, you know, that's why Conte enjoys so much success wherever he goes, because he plays in a role that's been unfashionable for years. Uh, you know he makes it look so easy. Uh, you know he does it all with a smile on his face, the smile that brightens up, you know, pretty much any uh, any squad that he walks into. Uh, you know, and it it wasn't lost on me either that that Thomas Tuchel was able to succeed with Chelsea in the Champions League, where he failed with PSG the season before. Um, and he's found a player that he was sorely missing uh, from his time in Paris. Uh, you know, Conte was the defensive midfielder that he was crying out for. Uh, you know, he was linked many times with Julian Weigel, uh, who ended up moving to, to Benfica. But PSG never really satisfied his need for uh, a defensive midfielder or in that C- Conte mould. And although there are very few players out there like him, uh, you know, Conte is really one of those guys who you can point to and say, you know, he is key for, for club and country, and I think the biggest concern now uh, for both Deschamps and Tuchel uh, is finding ways to, to to keep him fit because it's such a taxing position uh, and role that, that that Conte plays within those two teams that it's normal that as he gets older, he's going to pick up more and more injuries and have you know sort of physical concerns, uh, and I think that's something that Deschamps is going to have to manage really well. Uh, now coming into this uh, th- this Europe. Uh, and it's something that he's going to have to keep in mind as well ahead of uh, the World Cup in 2022, because I think, you know, given his age, Conte is sort of heading towards, you know, this being one of his final uh, international tournaments, because given the way, uh, you know, that he's been impacted physically over the last couple of seasons, it doesn't seem like he's going to be the kind of guy who is, uh, you know, still going uh, sort of in his uh, mid to late 30s.
1: Yeah, I think, again, I mean, if Germany wants anything out of that, that that's going to be a player they want to shut down. Um, speaking of Germany, this is my second last question to you, and then we're pretty much through my, my question catalog there, Jonathan. What is France's perspective? How do they see this German national team?
0: I think the view of the German national team is it's one it's a squad that has a lot of talent uh, in it. You know, one sort of similarly equipped to the French national team. But I think there's a um, there's a sense of confusion in France as to why Germany haven't moved on from Joachim Love, uh sooner than they have. You know, I think there's an expectation that Germany will become a major player once again when Hansi Flick takes over. Um, but that while Joachim Löw is in charge, uh, you know, this this Germany side will you know, sort of roll over uh, and, you know, accept being beaten by by their opponents. Uh, you know, I when I looked at the squad, my feeling was that if the Germany national team could, uh, you know, sort of get themselves into the mindset of being underdogs, uh, you know, regardless of, of what their feelings towards love might be after, you know, so long in charge, if they were to sort of view this tournament as having nothing to lose, then that would make Germany extremely dangerous given the, you know, the, the, the quality that they, bo- they boast uh, in that group. But whenever I've seen Germany, particularly over the last 12 to 18 months, it, it just seems like they almost can't wait, uh, you know, for for Loew's time in charge to be over. Uh, so I'm expecting that Germany will become more of a threat uh, sort of towards the 2022 world cup when when flick will be in charge and i think that is a feeling that's you know pretty prevalent in uh, in france as a recognition obviously that there's a lot of talent there uh you know but also that there's been issues now for for quite some time
1: i, I think that's a feeling that's very much echoed in germany as well for anyone following this team uh, my final question is and I, I think the answer to that is quite easy but I'm going to ask it nonetheless, What is France's expectations out of this tournament?
0: I think the obvious expectation is that they will get to the latter stages. But if France, you know, react to uh, you know being in a competitive tournament the way that they did uh, in the World Cup, what we can expect, I guess, is a reasonably slow but consistent start. Uh, and then them sort of ramping up the the pace as we as we hit the latter stages, uh, and I think that the expectation would be sort of at least a semi final, uh, but really uh, you know the aim will be to to go all the way and win it. Obviously they went to the final in 2016 on home soil, but got beaten by Portugal. Plenty was made about the fact that France got one day less rest uh, than the Portuguese. Uh, you know we'll, we'll never know if that would have made a big difference or not. But, uh, you know, I think that France will feel that there's some some unfinished business. And I think many of the, the, the members of the squad will feel that this is definitely a group capable of being world and European champions at the same time.
1: And they, of course, have done it before. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on and chatting to us. Um, where can people find you?
0: oh the pleasure is all mine uh you can find me it's probably best to to get me on twitter so that's john underscore legosip uh j-o-n underscore l-e-g-o-s-s-i-p and that's where you can find sort of all my bits and pieces for for cbs and any other uh appearances that
1: i that i might make on uh you know radio or podcast that sort of thing fantastic stuff thank you again and yeah we're going to move on to our next guest Joining me now is another person that I have spent a lot of time talking to on various social media platforms and helping me to preview Portugal is Tom Kundert from Portugal. Tom, this is exciting. We finally get to talk in person.
3: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> After so many years, yeah, so many, uh, so much communication, all written, of course. So yeah, it's good to hear your voice, and it's uh, yeah, going to be great talking to you about the Euros,
1: Tom. Why are you the Portugal expert for this podcast?
3: I am the owner of portugol.net, which is a website all about Portuguese football written in the English language. And so uh, you find everything on there from domestic football, Portuguese clubs in European football, and of course the national team, uh, you know, everything about national team and the Portuguese footballers playing abroad. A lot of them nowadays are doing very well, luckily. And uh, I combine that also with uh, some journalism for other publications, uh, such as the World Soccer Magazine, who I'm a Portugal correspondent for. So, uh, yeah, just kind of uh, immersed myself in Portuguese football with a slight twist that it's all in the English language.
1: So, just the man that we need. Tom, that's match day two of Group F, that Germany will face this Portugal side, and they are the European champions. They are defending this title, um, maybe a title that they won in not really the most convincing fashion four year ago. Four years ago, I think they didn't win a regulation game until the semi final, if I am correct, right? Correct. Right. Um, but when you look at this team, so make no mistake, this is a very, very good team on paper. I mean, football isn't played on paper, and I think. Germany's team, for example, on paper looks very good, good, but there's a lot of doubt of whether the national team coach is the right person. But when you when we look at this team, Tom, what are Portugal's biggest strengths?
3: Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting there you talk about on paper, Manuel, because, uh, you know, like you said, four years, well, five years ago now, isn't it, that Portugal won their first uh, trophy. And if you asked 100 Portuguese football fans, if this squad was stronger than the squad which won the European, uh, you know, the, the trophy, uh, well, I'd guarantee you about ninety plus of them would say yes, uh, no doubt about it. This squad is stronger, but that's the that's the thing. On paper and talking about the squad, the squad is stronger, player for player. This has got more talent. It's got especially attacking, offensive talent. You know, some fantastic players who are uh, doing brilliant things all around Europe. But uh it's interesting what you just said there about Germany, because uh you know Portugal, to be fair, haven't really translated that fantastic talent into a cohesive team as of yet, only from time to time, I'd say in the last two two or three years have has that happened uh you know so there's there's a kind of feeling in Portugal that yes, there's a lot of optimism yes there's this is you've got some supremely talented players. Yes, this squad is stronger than the 2016 squad, but is it a stronger team? Uh, well, we we'll just have to wait and see.
1: So, when you say, "Okay, these are the, the actual strengths," um, where you you have you see, I, I feel there's a little bit of doubt there, Tom, about this team because I, I mean, on paper, again, this is like every position two or three players. Maybe a little bit in defense where I say, okay, maybe there's some weaknesses there. Does this team have any weaknesses? And again, we're playing this game on paper right now. It's not like we're we're out there in, in real life. But um, is that maybe where Germany can say, yeah, this is where this team can be vulnerable?
3: Oh, yeah. I think without a doubt, that's what most opponents who play Portugal, that what's, that's what they're going to be looking to do to attack not only... The centre backs, and especially, of course, they're actually two very good centre backs. Of course, Ruben Diaz has had an amazing season at Manchester City, and Pep, uh, of course, uh, you know, as he showed against Juventus earlier this year, you know, he can really put it out still. But he is 38 years old, you know, those bones are beginning to creak a little bit. And I think perhaps a little bit less, um, uh, less talked about, maybe, is Portugal's full backs, who are both you know fantastic players one of course you'll know very well Rafael Guerreiro who plays at uh, Borussia Dortmund and you know has for years again supremely talented player but really good going forward as is Joao Cancelo the right back but both of them uh, when they're playing against top opposition at least uh, in a portugal shirt you know they have shown some weaknesses uh, in the defensive side of their game so, you know, that may be one area where uh, opposition teams might look to uh, you know, try and target Portugal. I think both their fullbacks uh, perhaps aren't the you know strongest fullbacks.
1: When I look at this the last few games, is it four, two, three, one that 3 one that for, uh, Fernando Santos is going to opt for? Or do you think we can see any sort of experiments with this team?
3: Yeah, well that's interesting that's that's kind of been his It was his go-to formation for a long time. He had William Carvalho and Danilo as the two at the base of the centre midfield, you know, the kind of double pivot. And that, you know, that worked quite well and that was quite settled. But it's changed a little bit in recent months. Why? First of all, William Carvalho, he's had a very disappointing season at Real Betis. You know, he kind of just fell out of favour, didn't play a lot of games or was only used as a sub. And even Danilo, uh, you know, he probably hasn't had his most consistent season, of course, moved from Porto to PSG. He's done reasonably well, but he isn't an automatic starter for PSG and he's actually played quite a few games at centre-back. So that obviously raises a lot of questions. You know, you don't really want two uh, kind of central mid, you know, midfielders or sort the of base of your midfield, two players who really aren't in very good form and uh and so he has changed a little bit to a bit more of a four-three three. I think we'll have, you know, uh Bruno Fernandes, obviously, I think would be the attacking midfielder. And uh probably Danilo, I'd say, would be the the more defensive midfielder. And then it's you know a lot of choice for the for the third midfielder in recent games. Uh you you say that perhaps he's he's opting towards uh you know Renato Sanchez there. Uh, and then probably used the three up front as a you know uh, Cristiano Ronaldo. Then you'll have a uh, Bernardo Silva, and uh, you'll have Diogo Jota probably, who's been really good whenever he's played for for Portugal in the last you know, in the last year or so. So uh, yeah, you know I suppose one illustration again of the strength in depth of this Portugal side is you got a player like Andre Silva, who again you will know better than. You know, better than me, has just had an absolutely incredible season, can't stop scoring for Eintracht Frankfurt. And yet, uh, you know, it's a very good chance, I think, that he won't be starting. There's
1: a couple of names that you mentioned that I'm really curious about. And I didn't have it originally on my list, but now that you brought him up, is Renato Sanchez, because he is a player that I know very well as well from his time at Bayern Munich. Um, four years, uh, four, sorry, five years ago, I'm still on 2020 rather than 2021. But um, five years ago, Bayern Munich seemed like they had signed the Golden Boy when they signed him. And it never really happened for him in Munich. And I think we're still trying to figure out quite why. Went to Lille, the a site that I follow closely because of my Canadian side, um, with Jonathan David being there as well. And he's done phenomenal there. Is Renato Renato Sanchez one of those players where you say, look, he took a step back and he can be really, with the time that he had in Bayern, the time that he had now had Lille, can be a key player for this team?
3: Yeah, I think so, definitely, because he offers things which no other Portuguese players really do. Uh, You know, we talk about these fantastic attacking players which Portugal have got, you know, Bernardo Silva, Joao Felix, Ronaldo, and... uh, they're, a lot of those even Ronaldo now of course has lost a lot of his his pace and- athleticism they're uh they they're kind of cerebral players, I think you can call them you know they're they're very intelligent footballers as well as being of course supremely skillful footballers and you know a very good vision but uh but you wouldn't really call them particularly dynamic, and that's something which you know that that's probably the word is the one word if you wanted to define Renato Sanchez you'd probably say that you know dynamism you know energy uh, you know kind of strength non-stop kind of buzzing about and that's that's something which is really useful for Fernando Santos and Portugal because uh, you know that's some, sometimes Portugal could be a little bit pedestrian and a little bit predictable but he he really is is neither of those two things so yeah and uh, in in recent games you know he's he's only recently got right back into the uh, the Portugal setup, up And, uh, for instance, in the recent World Cup qualifiers, it was probably Portugal's best player. Uh, him and Jota, I'd say, were probably Portugal's best players in those, in those three games uh, in March. And, uh, you know, and even in this friendly, which I suppose you can't really read too much into friendlies, can you, uh, pre-tournament friendlies. But, you know, again, he looked probably Portugal's best player in a friendly against Spain on Friday. So, yeah. And like you said, coming off a fantastic season. So is. Yeah, his confidence will be sky high, and yeah, looking at his career, I think most people can, kind of, it's quite easy to identify now that 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 move to Bayern Munich was just too too soon, you know, too early in his career. Uh, he'd had a fantastic debut season. He hadn't even had a full season at Benfica when Bayern Munich bought him, you know. So it was, it was a bit of a surprise, but you know, he'd he'd looked brilliant in that season, and then of course he was very good in the in Euro 2016. So you can kind of understand Bayern Munich getting in there before anyone else did or before his price became even more expensive than than it was. Uh, but yeah, it didn't really turn out, didn't really work out for him there, did it? I think, you know, the the competition was just so fierce. They were, he was a very good player, but he was still raw. And, you know, that, that side was just Rolls Royces, weren't they? <laughs> all, all throughout that midfield, you know, they were just basically... Lots of the the best midfielders in the world were were in that side, and so perhaps shouldn't have been such a surprise that he struggled to make an impact. And then of course, he had a few problems of injuries and things, and then yeah, unfortunately, it just didn't work out for him. But uh, but yeah, he's back. He's back on track. And of course, the fact that he was so young when he when he did burst onto the scene uh, kind of makes people forget that he's still very young. You know, he's he's twenty two, I think twenty two or 23. 23, so, yeah. Yeah, 23, yeah. So, you know, he's still really, if you're thinking about it, it's you know quite near the start of his career or, you know, in, in theory, the next five, six years would be the best years of his career if he, you know, follows a kind of normal football trajectory. And uh, so, yeah, you know, very, I think it'd be very exciting to to see him uh, at this tournament. And I think uh, a lot of Portugal fans and most importantly, I think Fernando Santos, the coach, uh, really expect him to play a big part in this tournament.
1: Maybe the, the my final thoughts on Renato Sanchez, maybe the player he is now is actually the player that Bayern Munich need for next year. But uh, that's a different story for a different podcast. I don't want to put uh, <laughs> start any transfer rumors here. Um, I want to talk about Cristiano Ronaldo because he is a guy who... <laughs> phenomenal career so many years at the very top of football how with with the season he had with Juventus in mind you do get the sense now he is coming to an end um, at some point soon how important is he still for this team and how big of a factor could it be that you know they almost over rely on him considering all the other talent that they have available
3: yeah I think I wouldn't say they over rely on him now because that was definitely a big problem for Portugal for many years. They did certainly over rely on him. I think it's more I, I I know your question and it's a good question. I know the gist of your question. I, I think the word isn't perhaps over rely. It's perhaps uh, over focus on him, uh, which, you know, that is definitely something which has been a problem for Portugal. You know, that has been a problem for Portugal. You know, players are kind of in awe of him and uh, it's almost understandable. You know, you look what he's doing. We're talking about the greatest Portuguese footballer of all time, one of the greatest footballers of all time, full stop. And so it's kind of understandable that, you know, players are a little bit in awe of him. Uh, and then, of course, <laughs> his his attitude is so uh, ambitious, he's so driven that that can kind of translate into what can be perceived as a little bit of a you know kind of drawing a lot of attention to him always calling for the ball always wanting the focus again to be on him because he always wants to be the one who you know not in a bad way he just thinks that he's a you know he's the best person to uh you know to to take Portugal forward now i think this is slightly different now first of all because you've got players like Bruno Fernandes you've got players like Leonardo Silva, you've got players, you know, like uh, even Joel Felix, who's, you know, just won the Spanish championship. Who, players who are very successful in their own right uh, and players who are confident in their own ability. And, uh, and, and so I don't think there's this, I don't think there's so much in all of him as, as they were, or how can I put this there? You know the respect. There's certainly as much. You know, there's a lot of awe and respect for him for what he's done in his career. But they, uh, you know, I think if if it comes to it, people, these players will be prepared to take on responsibility themselves, and uh, I think that makes a big difference. And now, there's a very interesting discussion going on in Portugal now. Quite often, uh, quite a lot of people, and I'd say more and more as time goes on, are suggesting something which. Just about a year ago, maybe would be would be hearsay, which would be uh, Portugal actually played better without Cristiano Ronaldo, and and that and that has uh, caused you know quite a lot of controversy or quite a lot of column inches, you can say, to be written. Uh, I suppose the thing to say there, the most important man again uh, in respect to this is Fernando Santos, and Fernando Santos has made it absolutely clear that. For him, he believes that Cristiano Ronaldo is still the best player in the world. At least that's what he says. And uh, he'll still be you know, the first. He said, this team cannot possibly be any stronger without Cristiano Ronaldo in it. So Ronaldo will start every single game, you know, unless maybe Portugal are in a position where they can rest him. But if not, he'll start every single game and he will be the focal point of their attack. Uh, and so, yeah, he has slowed down a little bit, of course. Uh, it's going to be interesting. Cristiano Ronaldo slowing down is a uh, is is a is a concept which has been uh, talked about time and time again. But I mean, even this season, uh, Manuel, you know, he's slowed down. He scored thirty six goals. Yeah. In, in Italy, <laughs> you know, so if, it's if context player matters,
1: player, right? <laughs> yeah,
3: exactly. If it was any other player who scored thirty six goals, you know, you'd just say, "Wow, you know, who is this?" And you know, but even taking away the penalties or whatever, that's yeah. uh, you know, he's a uh, He's still a, a fantastic and a top performer. And, of course, uh, now you could argue that he's finally got a supporting cast who, uh, you know, the, the kind of calibre of players surrounds him who he really should have had and he hasn't had for, for many years at Portugal. And so that, of course, will help them because uh, it's, a, it's a mutual thing. They'll help them because Ronaldo will obviously, you know, draw a lot of attention. And, uh, but also, uh, you know, on the other side of the coin, uh, you know, defenders will be focusing on trying to stop, uh, you know, uh, Bernardo Silva, trying to stop Bruno Fernandes. And so perhaps Ronaldo will have a little bit more space than he has had previously. So, yeah, uh, sorry for such a long-winded answer. But to, uh, the long and short of it is, yeah, Cristiano Ronaldo is still a hugely important part of this Portugal side.
1: All right, that brings me to my final question, Tom. How is the Germany team seen in Portugal?
3: Yeah, well, I think Germany, you know, it's the. We, we had a, a little sample of it yesterday in the European under 21 final. Uh, they always are a team which are hugely respected in Portugal, mainly because uh, they almost always beat Portugal, of course. <laughs> Historically, uh, Portugal have got a terrible record against Germany. I think the only. Good result that I can remember was, of course, the uh, Euro 2000 uh, Championship, where Portugal actually pulled off a bit of a surprise victory in that one. Uh, but that was a surprisingly weak, I'd say, a, a historically mm-hmm. a very unusually weak uh, Germany side, of course. And there, even if perhaps this this Germany side isn't can't be compared to the great sides, I think that's fair to say. Uh, you know, of of the past, it's still very, very strong. And Germany, as ever, they seem to have this ability to... uh, It doesn't really matter who the individuals are. They always, as a collective, they're always really, really tough to beat, really strong. And I also do think you see this a lot also in club football when Portuguese sides play against German sides. Portuguese sides have got an atrocious record against uh, German sides in club football and i think a lot of it has to do with physicality uh because you know the german game is uh, i know it's a bit of a cliche but i think it's a cliche which has some truth to it is is based a lot on you know power and strength and physical strength although of course you know especially in recent years germany have had fantastically technical players but uh i think that's one that's one uh i'd say f- Fret or one aspect of the game which Portuguese people are worried about, because of course you look at Portugal's best players, uh, you know Bernardo Silva, Bruno Fernandes, Joao Felix players that that's even Diogo Jota. They're all players who are kind of quite slight, quite not exactly built, you know, uh, very strongly. And so there is a a bit of a worry that perhaps German, uh, you know, the German side might outmuscle them or overpower them physically. Uh, which is precisely what happened in the 21 final yesterday uh, between Germany and Portugal. So, yeah, you know, that's, I think, Portugal will be hoping, obviously, for a very good result, well, uh, in the first game against Hungary. So they can kind of go into that game against Germany, uh, you know, with uh, perhaps a bit of a lead on Germany, depending what Germany do against France, or perhaps a a bit less uh, pressure on them. And then I'd expect them to possibly play play on the break, especially, of course, as it would be in Munich. So it'd be like playing in an away game. So, uh, yeah, it should be a fantastic occasion. But, uh, yeah, no doubt about it. Portugal are very, very wary of this German side.
1: Well, that con- concludes this part. Tom, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And if people want to find you, where can they find you?
3: uh yeah okay well thanks Manuel. well always enjoy uh you know communicating with you <laughs> i was going to say chatting to you but this is the first time yeah always good uh you know exchanging ideas with you the best place to find me is at twitter and my twitter handle is a uh, portugal one so that's p-o-r-t-u-g-o-a-l and then one the number one portugal one so if you just go there then uh you know all my uh journalism work and all my uh, thoughts about portuguese football would be in that one place
1: and it's a fantastic place for portuguese football I've, I've my go-to for portuguese football for many many years if you haven't followed tom yet please do if you haven't checked out his blog yet or his site please do it's uh, fantastic work oh well, thanks again tom really appreciated this I'm now joined by Thomas Mortimer to Preview Hungary. Thomas, for people who don't know you, shame on them. Tell us how you became the expert on Hungarian football.
2: Yes, it's it's kind of a weird story to be honest. Um I started getting into Hungarian football when I was basically about ten years old, maybe maybe even younger than that. So my grandparents are Hungarian. I'm I'm British. I grew up in, in the UK. Um, but my grandparents kind of brought me up a lot i spent a lot of time with them bring um him when i was a young of young age um and my granddad being a massive football fan basically indoctrinated me about hungarian football um especially the Martin magyars um he used to tell me about pushkosh all the time like i knew pretty much the the mighty magyar team uh, off by heart when i was probably like 12 or 13 years old um i used to play kind of with the um Hungarian teams on Football Manager and I used to watch a lot of NB1 as well when I was growing up. Like my granddad lived in, in the UK uh, and had a Hungarian TV um, installed into his TV so I used to watch a lot of it. So I was kind of basically grew up and I knew as much about Hungarian football as I did about, um, about English football and then when I got to about 16, 17 I looked for um people who were writing about hungarian football in english and literally no one was so i thought and i never i never was a writer or anything like that before and and i just thought i'll just take it on myself i I was obsessed with football anyway and especially hungarian football at that point and there was just kind of a niche that needed to be um broken into i guess for someone and I i just happened to be that person so that was probably about 13 years ago now and yeah um ever since i've been writing about hungarian football and um yeah, for, for a number of publications across across Europe and um, also have our own podcast, which is called Moggyar Foxy Life, um, where we've interviewed people like Gabor Kiyurai, Peter Vermees down the years. So, um, yes, yeah, it's, um, it's, it, it kind of sounds weird when um, I just say oh, I'm a Hungarian football writer um, with this British accent, but there is a kind of a, a logical backstory to it, I guess.
1: I cannot test from following you that you are the expert without (laughs) a doubt. (laughs) Um, I mean, following you for a long time, and I hearing this background story you you know, you're just the person that we need to break down this Hungary team for us that possibly we don't know very much about. Um, for for Germany supporters listening to this podcast, right? This is a group F preview, Germany's group F. Um, when you look at this team, Thomas, what are this team's strengths?
2: I think more than anything, it's the togetherness and the collective. Um, a lot of international teams sometimes look like they are thrown together and they're just kind of a bunch of individuals thrown onto the pitch. And that's never an accusation that you can throw at this Hungarian team. I think more than anything that's what makes them so strong they they pretty much play like a club side um, because if you look at the team on paper it's it's really not impressive at all like one of our better players one of our best players for, for probably five years now is Aldon Nodge who um, is at Bristol City and he doesn't even get into the first team there every week but look at him playing on the international level and he's just a completely different player he's almost like the Hungarian D- David Healy like then David Healy was scoring all those goals. Like he was doing absolutely nothing at club level, and then he scored a hat trick against Spain. Like, I guess there are these random players who just can turn it on at international level, or maybe they just feel a little bit more confident. They they feel they are used better in, on international level, um, and that is kind of our whole team in general. Really, like there are a few standouts. Soboslai well, would have, of course, been one of the standouts. Um, Willie Orban, as you guys, I mean, I guess everyone I'm going to say almost now is 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 has a bit of a German relation. Um, Gulacci as well as you guys would know in Germany, is is obviously one of our better players, and um, we also have Attila Zali, who's who's at Fenerbahce, who's who's a really good defender. But the rest of that is kind of much of a muchness, and um, it's just the way that they play together is is something really special. And I think these games also are not the Euros games, but international games in general are the biggest games that these guys play. Um, you, you look to the players who play in Slovakia and Cyprus, uh, even like the players in the lower Bundesliga, like Adam Zolai and Roland Schalai, these games are still massive for them. That These games are the biggest games that they'll play all season, pretty much. So um, that helps in in qualifying and, and Nations League games. And I think it, it will help in this tournament as well, because, um, uh, from what I've heard from, uh, especially maybe Germany, they're in a bit of a ram, a bit, a bit ramshackle at the moment. They've not been in great form and that's not, not an accusation. Again, you can throw a Hungary, they've been in good form and, and they are together on the pitch. and um, They've been together for probably two weeks longer than most other national teams as well. So they breed this togetherness and they breed this uh, tactical nous that are not a lot of nations are uh do so i think i think that's what makes them so dangerous and what makes them so good despite like i say their team on paper not being that great
1: we have to speak about you know some of the things that may be going to um be problematic for hungary and dominic subos as you hinted is out um i feel like this is a he's a player who We've all been anticipating to finally see arrive in Germany, and um, we didn't get to see him at all, which is really sad. Because you know, I mean, I've been to Salzburg a few times to see him play there, and and then he arrives in Leipzig, right? And we have we are all looking forward to having this new sensation in the Bundesliga, and he never plays. And then now he's out for the Euros as well. He would have been one of the he probably would have been one of the biggest stars of the tournament period, not just for the Hungarian national team how big is his loss and can it be compensated
2: it is really huge um we've Hungary have actually done well without him uh, recently and and in the Poland game in which was our last proper qualifier we played andorra and san marino after that but um uh, our, our last proper qualifier um where he didn't play and we had the guy called Joel Kolmar who also used to be at Leipzig, didn't really make much of an impact there, and he's now back in Slovakia. Um, he was kind of the light for light replacement, and on, and again, he's one of those players on the, on in the international stage. He's just lit it up, and he's had a really really good um, season in, at Slovakia in Slovakia as well. But then he got injured in the Andorra game, and he's out. So like it, the Soboslai loss is massive in itself, but then our light for light replacement is also out. So. We're down to our third choice, number eight, essentially. Um, so it, it, it's it's a huge loss, but it's kind of a it's a mental loss as well. Like that, there's 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 such high hopes for him as you kind of intimated there, and even like Viktor Orban came out and was having his say on on the fact that he wasn't in the squad. So like, I think it's going to deflate the team massively. Even as much as how much it affects on the pitch, on the pitch, he he is one of the few players that we have in the squad who can who is I wouldn't. It's hard to say he's world class, but he he already has a lot of world class moments, and none of our players have that potential. Like his goal against Iceland was a world class moment. You, you've seen some of his goals in the Champions League, world class moments. I think. Um, the one he scored in the first group game. I can't remember the uh, teammate who it was, but for Salzburg, he scored an absolute screamer. And he scores loads of goals like that. And he's he's that player who can score from nothing, create something from nothing. And not having him in the team, especially when you're playing against sides where you're not going to have much of the ball and you need to make the most of every chance you have, not to have him in the side is a huge, huge blow. Because you just think, where, if we go 1 0 down, where is anything like that going to come from? You're almost relying on a set piece, it, it, in fact, potentially, um, or a, a moment of magic from someone else or a little bit of luck. But the moment of magic, there's not many players you can really point to who can create that. And Soboslai was the man to, yeah, who was going to be de- delivering that. So it's it's. He can't even speak about how much, how big of a loss it is. I still don't think it's the end of the world, but it is. Yeah, it's, it's, I I think also it's just really sad for him because he, he was, he was the man who, like I say, that goal against Iceland in the last minute, he was the man who took Hungary to the European Championships. And for him to miss out is, is super sad as well because these, these moments don't come around that often either for, for the Hungary national team. Like this is only the second tournament we've had in thirty-five years. And to play them at then with games at home at a European championship as well, super, super disappointing for him. I'm just hoping he um yeah he comes back from it strong. So how do
1: you replace him then? And is that player then automatically also the player to watch for Hungary?
2: Um I think I think the, like there's no there's not going to be a systematic change or or anything like that that Hungary will kind of stick to their formation which is a 5-3-2 um and yeah like i say Sobosai was the 8 in that th- in that midfield 3 um i think the like for like replacement is going to be probably Daniel Gozdog. it could potentially be David Shiger or like Nago. If it's shiger Kleinheiser will turn into the eight and Sheger will drop back a little bit in that midfield. Um, if it's Nago, they might like alternate, almost like play uh, alternating eights uh, with Kleinheiser and Nago. Um, there's just there's just no comparison, though, between the guys. Like like I say, if it was Joel, Joel Coleman, I know not many people probably have heard of him, um, but he he was playing magnificently for hungary and he was he has been a super superstar um but gostdog has barely played outside of hungary he's played i think a couple of international games uh, not many at all he's played some 100 hungary under 21 games and he's only just moved to the mls um and he's not particularly been great when he has he has played on the international level so i think it's it would be difficult to play him from the start. David Shiger has played uh, for Ferenc Varos in, in the Champions League this season and he's played a few more games at international level, though he's more of a, a workhorse than a player who's great on the ball. And then Loic Nago is a bit of a, a different one. Like he's um, he's actually French. He's played in Hungary for, I think, about six years, six or seven years now. He's only just uh, changed nationality. Um and he is he's someone who's really, really good on the ball and has international experience, uh, played for French under 19 and under 20 sides. Uh, and he will offer something a little bit different in that midfield. But whoever replaces him out of those three is just just not, just not comparable. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm interested. I actually heard you talk about Gastak
1: because, of course, he's he's got his transfer to the Philadelphia Union. And we have a lot of American listeners to this podcast, so they will have picked up their ears right there. And then um, gone over, you know, quite a lot here already. But Hungary is one of those few places at this tournament where we can expect full crowds in the stadium, right? They have two home games. The the third game they will be playing in Germany, Germany having all three home games. Um, with that in mind, first of all, we, we kind of spoke about this ahead of the podcast. Vaccination rates in Hungary are actually extremely high. You alluded to this. With vaccination rates being high and stadium at full capacity, what are the expectations then, with two home games at this tournament in, full of a four, in front of a full crowd? Um, is this something where you say, okay, well, maybe there is a shot even to get out of this group, or is that too much?
2: I honestly think it would have been a, there would have been a genuine shot if Sobosla had been fit and match fit. I think that would that was always going to be the difference anyway. Like you said, he he didn't play at all this season in Germany. So whatever Soboslai we would have had, it wouldn't have been the greatest. Uh, as good as it, he could have been. Um I think that would have the end but with, with whatever type of Soboslai, I think there would would have been a not expectation but potential um uh, potential that we could get through the group. Now, I just don't think so. Um, I think, I think Hungarian fans would just be happy to get, to be competitive more than anything. Um, I think if Hungary did end up getting battered by everyone, that would be seen as, yeah, that's not good enough. But I don't think if Hungary were competitive in every game and lost every game, I don't think that would be seen as a a bad tournament at all. Like, Hungarian fans are very realistic. We do uh perform above our uh our, our expectations and our quality a lot. Like in qualification, we, we ended up finishing fourth in the group, but we played we were in a tough group with Slovakia, Wales, and and Croatia, and we ended up beating Croatia and Wales at home. Um, and that that's just kind of a sign of of what Hungary are. In the Nations League last year, we beat Turkey. Serbia and Russia. To, well, sorry, didn't beat Russia, but we finished above them in the group. Um, and then we drew against Poland last time out, and we beat Iceland to qualify for this tournament. So Hungary always like all of those teams. I would say Hungary are worse than on paper. So Hungary are always playing above themselves, and I and I don't think that's kind of created a, a an arrogance or a a kind of a feeling that Hungary are better than. Hungarian fans think they're better than they are. I think that Hungarian fans are still very realistic regarding their chances. And I feel that probably Hungary fans fancy themselves potentially in that first game against Portugal, especially as Hungary got a point off them at the last Euros as well. I think France, most people see that as a a really, really tough game just because their team is so good and they're coming off the back of a World Cup win as well. Um, I think Germany, they kind of potentially see a, a chance there, just because Germany, like I say, aren't in great form. But playing away in that game is, is isn't easy, and I think Germany always have that aura around them at international level, despite despite the troubles that you you guys may have had. That they, they are, I mean, it's just the kind of their history. They always are known for for turning up at big tournaments, well, more often than not anyway. Um, so I, I wouldn't say there are any expectations apart from being competitive, really. Um, if Hungary got a couple of points, I think that I'd be, I think Hungarian fans would be delighted with that, to be honest.
1: So that gets me to my final question then. What, how is the German team seen in Hungary? And you kind of already alluded to it, but I'm really curious what Hungary's perspective is on this German national team.
2: I think German football in Hungary has always been. I, I almost feel like the most respected out of any out of any nation. I mean, I think it's maybe just that our historic ties to to Germany um, throughout throughout history. I mean, if we go back to World War One and we go back to World War Two and stuff like they're always always like that like collectiveness i guess like we we always kind of have, have had that affinity affiliation to uh to germany and obviously part being part of the austro-hungarian empire uh in, in, before world war one and obviously during world war one I, I think that creates more of affinity with with the germanic um nations um so and, and i think that despite hungary being under communism that that has been retained and in hungary like German football yeah it's just seen as being probably the elite um and and maybe that's why so many Hungarians go to the Bundesliga as well um I, i'm not quite sure of the reason for that but if you look at our squads uh, well look at all the Hungarian um players really they um who play in the big leagues they all play in Germany Gulacsi Orban Zolai, Schalai, uh Soboslai as well now, um, and I think there's a little bit of stylistic similarities between the way that the Hungarian league is and the and the German league. Um, so yeah, German football is always massively respected, um, but right now, well, I, and even right now, to be honest, despite Germany's bad form, they are seen as being yeah just the just the elite. Uh, out there, and you look at just their players on paper, and having Thomas Muller back is, is I, th- I feel like a huge blow to to Hungary. Just I think more than, more just his experience and his his mentality more than anything. Um, but I think Hungarians are uh, smart, and they do know that there is a realistic, potentially chance that that we could get a result out of this game. I think if it was at home, you'd you'd be a lot. You'd fancy Hungary a lot more, but um, yeah, I think be, that game being away and the last group game of, of the group, yeah, last game of the group, I think that makes it a lot tougher as well because that means that Germany are very, very likely going to be in a position where they need to win that game to go through, um, especially considering their first two games. So yeah, um, I think there's there's kind of a little bit of optimism, but I think there's a lot of fear and. Just more than anything, a lot of respect for for what Germany are as a footballing nation, really. Well, that's
1: that pretty much sums it up for me. Um, Tom, where can people find you?
2: So I'm on Twitter at Tomashmortimer. Mortimer. That's a Tomash without a H and with a Z. Um, you can find our podcast at HungarianFootball.com. Fantastic stuff, and
1: yeah, please if you listen to this podcast head over there, check it out, give Thomas a follow. And yeah, thanks again for doing this. And that's it. That wraps up our podcast. We'll be back soon doing more Euro stuff this year. And until then, auf Wiedersehen. <music>